0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Now, beloved listeners, I'll be back next week. That's if I can get through security. And I'll be talking to an old friend who's lived a remarkable life, so remarkable that his autobiography required two volumes. So in preparation for next week's interview, here is part one of the life of film producer Al Clark. Once upon a time in the olden days when I was a youngish film producer, I doubled as the chair of the Australian Film Commission, and in that capacity, used to lead the Australian delegation to the Cannes Film Festival. Now, forget the glamour. Cannes is a place for, well, carnivores. It's where the film industry is reveals its fangs and its uh, and its claws, where everyone is battling for a bit of attention and to cut a deal. I have many lurid memories of my duties there, including one sprawled on a double bed with uh, with uh, Harvey Weinstein, but uh, more of that later perhaps. But I remember one year when it was pretty difficult for us. We, You must remember that 35 years ago we didn't have a lot of household name actors and we are up against the big guns and we were also up against our friends the Brits. Now, into Carn Harbour sailed... The royal yacht which disgorged Charles and die, not to help us, not to help Australia, but to help their own pommy producers. So, what could we do to compete? Well, my colleague Kim Williams came up with the idea of bringing Gough Whitlam up from uh, up from Paris, where he had a sort of a diplomatic cultural post with UNESCO. And when Gough arrived on on the Croisset. The, uh, the paparazzi immediately surrounded him. Now, this was fascinating because no one had the foggiest idea <laughs> who he was, but there was something about Gough Whitlam which made it quite clear that he was a star. And uh, somewhere, would you believe, I've got some photographs of Gough posing with topless starlets, beaming beaming from ear to ear. Now... To thank to thank Whitlam, we decided we'd have a little dinner party for him, and uh, we conv- uh, we convened uh, some of the good and the great. And I found myself sitting next to a bloke, who uh, would become as much a part of my Khan memory as Harvey Weinstein. And he's sitting in the studio with me now. He was then; he is now a film producer, and I was captivated by his ability as a raconteur at that dinner. Later, an affair of the heart had Al taking a punt on the Australian film industry, well, not long after, actually, about 35 years ago, and he came down under to pursue his passion for filmmaking after what we will reveal as a successful, if somewhat turbulent career in the UK. Uh, he's probably best known here for Priscilla, that is, a Queen of the Desert, And he's had a remarkable life in the music and film industry, across the globe and across genres. We spoke to him all back in 2012 about his Australian career, but today in this special edition, we're going uh, further back in time. So climb into the TARDIS together and welcome to the Little Wireless program, Al. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Do you remember the dinner?
0: Yes, well, there was also, I'm, I'm, um, th- there were two meals. One was uh, that one and the other one was in a, a, a hotel restaurant um, when the Fringe Dwellers was um, was shown in, in competition at Cannes. And, um, yes, I enjoyed your company and uh, have enjoyed it um, since... Coming here, 35 years What a pity that
1: long friendship (laughs) will end tonight. Now, you start your biography with a vivid description of how films were made in a small, or made to, rather, the small village in Spain which you uh, happened to be living in.
0: The village was completely isolated. It was a village that existed only because the mining company which built it existed. And it built it in order to house its workers. And um, one of its workers was my father, who was a mining engineer in Scotland, who couldn't find work in 1930, and went there because it was a Scottish-owned company that had vacancies. I don't think he realized that in those days, traveling to southwestern Spain, was the equivalent of travelling to to Central Africa now, in terms of distance and in terms of its uh, isolation. What sort of mine are we talking? They mined something called parites, which is a a compound mineral, and uh, I believe that two of its uh, ingredients are copper and sulphur, and therefore it was called the Tarsus Copper and Sulphur Company had a better ring than the Tarsus (laughs) Parites Company. You were homeschooled by your mum? Yes. She was a a schoolteacher in Scotland who moved to Spain uh, to marry my father in Seville when he uh, realised that the price he would pay for his freedom and his employment was great solitude. And she decided to join him. My first exposure to, to movies
1: or films, as they're more correctly known, was at the Hoyt's Rialto in Kew in Melbourne. Yours was at the Cinema Corrales.
0: Yes. Well, Corrales was the name of the village where we lived, and the people who went to the cinema were the people who worked for the mining company. And across the river was a, a bigger town called Huelva but the river was was wide and treacherous and you could only really cross it by risking your life in a rowing boat (laughs) or taking a a small uh, public motorboat that went across it half a dozen times a day. So apart from that, the village was isolated and in isolation, cinema is of disproportionate importance, as of course was radio, there was needless to say no television at the time and between people listening to the radio and people going to the cinema once a week that was the extent of the outside entertainment it was your cinema paradiso in effect it was even more primitive than cinema paradiso because there was only one projector and so <laughs> i, I loved the show <laughs> when i could barely walk I learned how to spool the reels, as long as I got a little stool to stand on, uh, onto the the projector and turn on the projector and all the other things that went into making the film visible to the audience.
1: And quite often films arrived pretty late, including the newsreels. I understand that you saw uh, HM's coronation two two
0: years after the event. Well, I think their attitude was, what does it matter when these people get to hear the news (laughs) or get to see it on their screen? We'll just send them a full programme with a film and a newsreel and they can just play it, and nobody will care. But I did notice, since my parents were the only uh, Scots in the area, that, um, that they were rather perturbed by the lateness of the message.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it would have been hard to show cinemascope in your tiny cinema.
0: It was impossible because the the building was was created before Cinemascope existed. And so the size of the screen, which was in the ratio 1.37 to 1, which we call in the business Academy Ratio, was confined to a particular space. When Cinemascope arrived, that space could not be increased without very substantial changes to the building, probably to its foundations even. So we never saw anything in Cinemascope. And in order for me to experience the, 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 the width of the screen and the scale of the images, I had to see it at a, at a, a village, a fishing village um, down the river from us uh, on the Bay of Cadiz coast called Puntumbria. And that had summer cinemas, so it was, it was deliriously wonderful, I mean, to sit under the stars on a little wooden chair that was in the sand, watching these (laughs) enormous images that, of course, haunted me forever. I understand that
1: when you arrived in Australia and customers were going through your luggage looking for copies of Lady Chatterley, they came across some posters from these films.
0: Oh, yes. Well, I always... I mean, I, I collected from a very young age anything that I felt might enhance my then unknown adult life, and um, those things were among them. Is uh,
1: cinema karate still standing?
0: Yes. It's now a kind of, well, it was pre-COVID. I mean, the village has has kind of closed down in in the past 15 months or so, and nobody goes anywhere, but it was then a kind of arts centre. They had uh, performance and, and uh, presentations and, and, and so on, which, of course, was, was unthinkable um, when I was growing up there where uh, film really was the only kind of entertainment that the building seemed to be able to accommodate. It's a bit of a side story
1: but a fascinating one. Tell me about The Man Who Never Was, that movie and its significance...
0: In the town of Puntumbria, where I first saw cinemascope films, one of the films I saw was The Man Who Never Was. And it was uh, an amazing confluence of subject and location because it was on that very beach, the one in Puntumbria, that in World War II the Allies um, planted uh, a decoy of uh, a drowned man, an actual drowned man, rather, and in the drowned man's pocket was um, uh, an indicator of an allied invasion that would take place in the Mediterranean. False military information. And
1: I understand that uh, when the movie was uh, was screened, there were extras who were involved in the original?
0: Well, there was one who... In, in, in village life, um, the key figures are very, very well known to everyone. And the key figure in this case was a, a boatman called Puritano who used to take us across the river. And Puritano was cast as the fisherman who finds the body and runs off to tell the authorities that he's found it. And so every time that the film was shown anywhere locally, it got a big cheer when he came up on screen and he became the only celebrity that the village had known <laughs> up till then. How much of an
1: influence did this uh, early, lonely and uh, unstructured uh,
0: time have on you? Uh, it, it practically uh, monopolised my life because it was really the only entertainment we had um, outside of, you know, household amusements. um, Can I mention another technology? Books. Books didn't really interest me very much then because I associated them purely with procedural learning. Um, I did read two Spanish classics before leaving Spain at the age of nine, Don Quixote and and Ibañez's uh, Blood and Sand. But um, before then, I would have a daily lesson on weekdays with my mother between about 9.30 and 12. And that was my schooling up to the age of nine. I never went to school until then. And so to me, books were part of, of that world, the world of uh, of obligation rather than the world of pleasure.
1: Of course, later on, you would grab the odd book and turn it into a movie. There was a minor novel of George Orwell, 1984, which, uh, which comes to mind.
0: Thankfully, I'd learned to read by then. And, um, and I, I was dazzled by the book, as as we all were at the time and, um, and it, it really had to become a film. It had already become one film in the mid-1950s, but now it needed to become another one, a more well, authentic Was one.
1: it not the uh, penultimate film of, uh, of Richard Burton?
0: It was the very ultimate one. Was not? it? Yes. Okay. Uh, he, he died about three days after he finished post-thinking, his, um, his dialogue.
1: Do you uh, bear any responsibility for that?
0: Uh, no, he, was, he wasn't very well when he was making the film and he remained not very well.
1: Let's go back to the fact that your parents were fully integrated into Spanish life, learned the language, of course, embraced the culture, but they still held on to some Scottish traditions.
0: Yes, they they were Scots. They'd been Scots into their adult life and they couldn't accept uh, a total surrender to their new environment. So the way I think we all do to differing degrees, they clung to a few things that would remind them of what they referred to as home. I never quite understood why home should be anywhere other than where you were, but to them leaving Scotland was a significant move and it was always called home. So from home they imported once a year in a trunk some groceries of the period. You uh,
1: went to the magic city of Seville. And something rather cinematic happened to you there as
0: well. Well, the personal cinematic thing that happened to me was that it was a place of of great beauty and also great sadness because it meant that I was being seen off on the train to go to boarding school. And so I would spend the hour or two before that walking around the park in tears, trying to conceal my tears from my parents, but I suspect the moment to which you were referring was that as a child I had dinner with my parents in a restaurant and the, some of the cast and crew of Lawrence of Arabia, which was shooting in the town and around there at the time, came in. And I think I remarked that it was the first time I had ever seen a table full of men with, in dinner jackets. <laughs> okay,
1: you were sent to boarding school Larchfield outside Glasgow. Is, was it a, is this a horror stretch?
0: Oh, boarding school is a, is a horror stretch to anybody who feels they have no choice. It's, um, it's like going to jail in, in the sense that, that you are a prisoner of circumstances over which you had no choice. So I went to jail, and uh, I caught the kinds of illnesses, uh, in chiefly influenza and pneumonia and stuff like that, that that one gets in confined circumstances, where you spend all your time, half your time playing sports, and the rest of your time um, showering after you've done it.
1: After mm. Edinburgh, for high school.
0: Yes, that was just a different coast. The, the map of Scotland will reveal that um, the middle of Scotland is a very slender waist, so from Glasgow to Edinburgh is no time at all. But you can move from west coast to east coast in probably the least time it takes across any country. And there I went and it was a similarly uh, you know, isolated, less so than than Helensboro because um, it was much closer to Edinburgh.
1: Were, were you acclimatised? It was pretty cold there after, after Spain.
0: Well, I was I was freezing all the time. I, I, I really can't describe um, more than I already have in the book just how corrosive cold is. Because at those, at those schools, uh, heating is disregarded usually. Um, these were boys' schools, so the, the whole idea was that you, you, you were being character built into a hard man who could be a Scotsman, go out and, and w- travel the w- world.
1: What really? a shame. That didn't work in your
0: case. No, it? no. I, I mean, I just became a, a, a kind of silent, resentful little sissy... <laughs> Struggling with structure and authority,
1: though. <laughs> it's amazing you were allowed into Australia because they should have known that you were expelled for uh, smoking and drinking hijinks uh, post exams and that your father had sent you to work in Paris for punishment, some punishment.
0: Indeed. I think his his main concern was um, that I, I might kind of fall into bad teenage mischief and that Paris, under the occasional eye of uh, work colleagues of his, might be a a preferable alternative.
1: Did you see any movies in Paris? Did you have a new wave?
0: It was fantastic because Paris was in the the grip in the mid-1960s of its infatuation with, with cinema, with American cinema especially. And they showed films in, in Paris, certainly, in their original version. Uh, as a child, I had never seen, I'd uh, never heard English people speak, English language people speak in English. Because all the films in Spain were dubbed, yeah? Correct. Yeah. So in Paris, I got, I got my first chance to, to witness these films uh, spoken by the same actors that I was seeing and they were all subtitled uh, naturally but it was a different experience that kind of saturation that i got in Gorrales, with a different perspective the different perspective being people were actually talking themselves
1: you're listening to the threatened lnl special and the spotlight is on uh, author and old friend l clark and the programme is, of course, LNL on ABC Radio National. Now, suddenly, there's a shift because your passion for cinema
0: was, if not overwhelmed, paralleled
1: by a passion for music.
0: All teenage boys at the time, certainly all the ones I met, were intoxicated with popular music. Mine came via my sister, who was some years older than me and some years cleverer and more alert than me. And she would draw my attention to records uh, during holidays. And while I was at school, um, on one of the schools, the second one, she was working in the nearby city, which by then was Edinburgh. And so I just had this constant... um, reminder from her of of things that were were of interest and then of course i developed my own interests and at school i um i even went as far as to to put together a a group to perform a piece of classical music that i'd heard in the school chapel and sent it to an entrepreneur in london called kim Fowley who a few years later turned out, became incredibly famous as a, as a producer but never replied to my tape.
1: God, what, how, how insulting. Uh, now, we're talking, of course, uh, the Beatles, the Stones, the mamas and the papas, a very exciting time to be alive.
0: Yes, I, I doubt if there's been... Uh, a period uh, as intense as that in terms of musical adventurousness in, in pop music. Some would claim that uh, punk, which followed later, was much more exciting, and then the new romantics and so on and so forth. Popular music has a lot of tributaries, but the river itself was never so intensely flowing as it was during that period, the one that you describe and that I uh, bathed in, really. So you find yourself wanting to write about music
1: and film and theatre and uh, there's Time Out, that splendid
0: magazine. It was just underway when I arrived in London. By then I was a 21-year-old father and husband uh, who had no money, and my parents still lived in Spain, and so I couldn't, uh, you know, go to them at weekends. And so I tried a very as many jobs as I could um, until time out, which was a, a job that excited me and put me as this, little outsider right in the vortex of of london life at a time when it was becoming exciting
1: it was also a time when you had well a sort of cultural encounter with australia because the, the writers at oz were achieving fame or infamy through the obscenity trial
0: yes i never really got to know them because i was they were celebrities uh, as a consequence of that trial And I was just a a kind of lowly paid uh, junior uh, reporter at Time Out. But um, I remember my, I mean, I I, I so admired uh, Richard Neville because he was the only one of that gang, I mean, I included uh, Time Out, who understood that part of running... Uh, an, uh, an expanding enterprise, even if it was called an underground magazine, was the way you presented yourself, the way you spoke and the way you acted. And he was he was really terrific.
1: Now, it's long, long, long before you produced a movie, but uh, you and your young wife did produce a baby. Did this change you profoundly?
0: Yes, in that... Everything included the baby. It, it's the, the, the profundity lies in the change of gear that is necessitated by that new arrival. And fortunately, I had a year of university still to go. So we had the baby in Birmingham where I was at university. And we lived for the first few months a very... Still, almost pastoral life um, despite living in a city somehow we managed to find a place with a back garden where we could be a little family and um, then of course we had to when we were in London we had to um, accept the fact that finding a place that would take a baby was uh, an obstacle in itself if you were a a young rental couple. Yeah.
1: Tell me about uh, Tony
0: Elliott at Time Out. He was a great man. He, he invented something that people wanted at a time when they didn't even realise they wanted it. And I think in the publishing world, that kind of, of vision, when it coincides with your own aspiration, it's not something you needed to fabricate, is um, unstoppable, really, because he he just knew and he, he enlisted quite a number of us to help him realise um, that knowledge. At the time, we had
1: two immensely influential journals, Private Eye on the one hand and Time Out on the other, but Time Out was even more of the zeitgeist, wasn't it?
0: Time Out dealt with things that were going on and Private Eye dealt primarily with things that were going on in the minds of its contributors. So I think Private Eye was very much an instrument of conception and Time Out was a mirror. They were different in aspiration.
1: Now the story takes a Cinderella turn with, of all people, Richard Branson as your fairy godmother.
0: Yes, well, he was a bearded fairy godmother, so that immediately set him aside. (laughs) He just, he called up one day um, when I was already working for a a record company and uh, invited me over for a chat after work. And he just offered me a job straight away. I mean, I I knew him very little. I'd had dinner with him once a year earlier, but the company was at a, at a stage where it had already laid its foundations in the form of, of the best, the, the luckiest opening break that a, a record company could ever get, which was a multi-million seller in uh, Tubular Bells. My Goldfield, yeah. Yes. So in that respect, he, had, he, he already knew where he was going, but he needed to navigate its expansion and its progress. So uh, he wanted more people. You see, if you'd
1: stayed with Richard, you'd now be navigating
0: outer space, wouldn't you? Not quite, because he hasn't navigated outer (laughs) space yet. So I think he's going to be first, don't you?
1: (laughs) But he's heading in in that general direction. So you start working with him in 1974, doing what?
0: publicity i the in the record business then especially publicity was was oxygen you there were there were four music weeklies published and anticipated by those very people that i had been when i described to you my my zealotry for pop records Um, These people bought these magazines in great quantities every week. There were newspapers essentially, you know, only the monthlies were magazines. But there was so much to write about always and my job was to make sure that it was our groups that were written about
1: it. Of course, you had the advantage of being one of the few publicists who could actually put a sentence together.
0: Well, it comes and goes. I'm sure I've left a few unfinished uh, subordinate clauses in the course of this evening. But I did know how to speak on the phone, which is interesting because I never used the phone till I was about 21 because I never had a phone. We didn't have a phone in Spain of any kind at all. And um, I never had I I couldn't afford a phone in well, it's, it, Birmingham.
1: It, it, look, so. you still don't bloody well have one. I know this mm. from bitter personal experience when I try and get in touch with you.
0: <laughs> well, a phone is all I use really now. Oh, I, I, I do have email, but I'm, um, I, I don't have any of the other uh, methods. Uh, feeling, I suppose, <laughs> a kind of fear of suffocation. Mm-hmm
1: where, well, time is flying, as we discussed, Time Flies with its author, L. Clark. Now, the only thing I vaguely remember about 20th century music is Bill Haley and the Comets with Rock Around the Clock, but I am... I sort of have a vestigial hint of memory of something called The
0: Sex Pistols. Were you involved with that? I was the improbable mouthpiece for a year or so until they imploded. It was the most unlikely matching or rather mismatching of of publicist and and group because they were 21-year-olds um, interested in, in stirring things up. Certainly their manager, Malcolm McLaren, was. And I was a 29-year-old, by then father of two, Living in the suburbs, and so it was kind of perfect that the spokesman for uh, an anarchic, supposedly anarchic and and, uh, and and menacing group should be this um, this man from the suburbs who who spoke like I do.
1: Mind you, wasn't that hard to publicise an outfit who released a. A notorious version of God Save the Queen a week before HM's uh, silver jubilee.
0: Yes, it was all it, it was all pretty riotous um, that year, um, particularly the first half of it. But their manager was uh, really a, a kind of expert at orchestrating unrest, and his his view was that um, unrest was the key to having an impact and right there and then it was. By upsetting certain people, it aggrandized the group in others. So yeah. rather than sort of uh, apologise
1: for controversy, you and Richard and Virgin sort of went with it. You put
0: your foot on the accelerator. Yeah, yeah. We didn't need to do very much really. We needed to respond to changing circumstances. And we did, quite effectively.
1: I was very fond of uh, Derek and Clive, the alter egos of uh, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook. And you were establishing yourselves as the bad boys of the recording industry. God, they used to get into trouble for what could be mildly described as their profanity.
0: They were very funny. I mean they were by then they'd worked together for most of their adult lives, and so there was nothing remarkable about how well they they got along, and how effortlessly they fell into their their roles, the way they would abuse each other, the way they would extrapolate something that one of them said into an entire uh, opera and recording them was the least of the problems really <laughs> there's, so
1: some of them linger on YouTube and I commend them to you beloved listener. there's one recording which I understand set a world record a Guinness Book of Record for profanity in that there are 174 of them.
0: Yes, I think that was Derek and Clive Come Again, which was their second album of three. The third one was called Ad Nauseam and the cover depicted, uh, uh, it was a sick bag and the the record was encased in a cover that resembled sick. So I think after that we (laughs) realised there was nowhere to go. One of
1: the things uh, I remember or know well about you, is your fascination with L.A. Noir in general and with Raymond Chandler in particular.
0: When I was travelling a lot, I worked out that if I became interested in a particular author, I could read two or three of their novels during the journey. So as long as I cut out food... And viewing and sleep, then I could read these books. And I would start, I started with uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, several of whose novels had already been made into films, and then um, Raymond Chandler. And Chandler intoxicated me, and it coincided with my first trips to Southern California and to Los Angeles in particular, which was the place that he chronicled more vividly than anyone else. And so I became a slave to Chandler and then realised as I started to work my way through the films which had been made from his his works that it interested me enough to write a book about it even though I was working for a record company and supposedly uh, had no time. But I made time. What is so great about Chandler i think that he he caught the spirit of the western seaboard of of america at a time when it was really shifting when prosperity and corruption were escalating when it, it felt like a dark place when the sun wasn't shining. And when the sun was shining, it still cast a big shadow when somebody walked along it, so.
1: You sit up in a hotel, in a particular and significant hotel.
0: The Montecito Hotel in Hollywood was a, a relic of the Chandler period. And it was populated by relics from between his pages. <laughs> And I encountered a number of them on arrival there uh, to which one's only conclusion could be I've come to the right place. <laughs> Did you also
1: encounter some of the, the stars of the, of the various Chandler movies?
0: It was a chase because they were beginning to die and uh, you know many of the films based on Chandler novels were, were made in the 1940s um, and the early 1950s. So I I had to find them. Many of them retired, and um, and interview them. Um, many of them uh, more forgetful than they had been, and and then chronicle it, uh, tie it all together in a, in 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 some kind of of thesis. You, know. you you found
1: Audrey Totter, who was the star of the Lady in the Lake. By <laughs> then she was the wife of a dentist.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, she was, she was married to a dentist called uh, Leo Fred, um, and so she was Mrs. Fred. Tell me, tell me that you tracked down Robert Mitchum, one of mine. No, I, I failed. I um, he was living in Santa Barbara at the time, which which wasn't that far away, and I wrote to him via his manager, and I wrote him. I, I thought quite a persuasive letter in a style that I thought he would enjoy, Um, but he either didn't receive it or didn't enjoy it, or (laughs) did enjoy it but couldn't care less (laughs) because he was all out of talking. (laughs) Lauren Bacall? Well, she was even more bizarre because... um, I, I got her number from somebody who would only give it to me <laughs> provided that I told her it had come from somebody else. The somebody else <laughs> it had supposedly come from was Billy Wilder. But, but Billy Wilder wouldn't talk to me about Double Indemnity, the film that he directed from Chandler and with whom he co-wrote the screenplay. So I didn't really mind putting him in the, in the soup, as it were. <laughs>
1: In, in this job, over the last 30-odd <laughs> years, I've become a to the famous, but uh,
0: I envy you speaking to Alfred Hitchcock. Well, it was actually, I, I thought afterwards to, uh, about toying with the idea of being disappointed that I hadn't actually met him. But then I realised that the fact that he had called me and that he was unmistakably Alfred Hitchcock, there was no director in the world whose vocal style was more uh, compelling and idiosyncratic than Hitchcock. Did you bring in a, uh, a transcript of the, of the conversation or can you remember it? I can, I can remember only that I was spellbound by his voice And perhaps because I was spellbound, I heard nothing from him that I didn't know already. I had hoped that when he eventually got in contact with me, and this took quite a while, I can assure you, that he would reveal something he was only revealing to me. And he didn't.
1: Before we have a long goodbye to Chandler, you did uh, meet or interview, Nina Van Pallant, who was the star of The Long Goodbye.
0: Yes, yeah. She was uh, a charming woman, um, a beautiful nature and a great candour about how it went. Um, She was probably the only one of the interviewees that I could have and would have established a friendship with if I lived in Los Angeles, but I didn't and I couldn't. It's interesting
1: that you describe her in this way as a gentle person. I began our chat by talking about the carnivores at Cannes. Mm. To be a producer or indeed a director does require a certain uh, ability to be brutal, but doesn't that also apply to movie stars?
0: No, not... It depends on, naturally, their nature... And also how secure they are. Um, I, I think the driving force of most aggression is insecurity, and uh, film actors are noted for having it. <laughs>
1: okay, tell me about uh, a short film called A Shocking Accident. This is <laughs> a one of this is a, a brief time away from Virgin, but he asked you to come back, and you. Uh, drawn to this film hmm. with an Oscar on your first production.
0: Yes, that was that was very bizarre and unexpected, um, but uh, it was great. We we put a very little money into the completion uh, of a film. I mean, we were in before it started, but we, we were taking care of the final £15,000, I think it was, of... The film's completion, and it was a short film based on a, a Graham Greene short story, and it ran for 25 minutes, and it starred the then uh, golden young couple of British cinema, Rupert Everett and Jenny Seagrove, and it was uh, it was perfect, really. It was a perfect miniature, and I wasn't surprised that it was it was well received because it was so exact. Mm-hmm.
1: I uh, I thrill at the name of Graham Greene because he was the author or the inspiration for my all-time
0: favourite film, *In Third Man*. Yes, well, he was also the source of uh, of other things, uh, notably *The Heart of the Matter*, which was uh, made twice in thirty years. I think he was a very good source of of material and worked with that same director, Carol Reed. Um, Uh, more than once. 1984, I talked about it a little earlier, but uh, you've got to tell me
1: how that film
0: came to you. We had done a film with uh, the producer, uh, Simon Perry, and we were talking about something else. And he mentioned the something else as being something that he and the director, Michael Radford, with whom he had worked before, Um, had uh, encountered via an American uh, lawyer called Marvin Rosenblum. And Marvin Rosenblum had had optioned the rights and he was running out of time to shoot it in time for the film to come out in 1984. It was widely assumed, because there had been an earlier version um, 30 years earlier, that, Who,
1: who's, that was that Edmund O'Brien.
0: Yes, Michael yeah. Rudgrave and Edmund O'Brien, right. and Jan Sterling. So that's that's two American actors and uh, and and Radgrave. and um, it was you know mid fifties, and the uh, objectives and the emphasis was different. Uh, the idea here was to make something that really reflected all's um, uh, prose in a very vivid, uh, uncompromising kind of way. So they had a very short time. And I think if, if we hadn't stepped in, I doubt if the film would have been made because we were the kind of company that was able to decide things really quickly. That was Richard's great strength. Um, at this stage. Well, talking of Richards, now here we have, uh, you talked before about the
1: body of a homeless Welshman, mm. the man who never was on a beach in Spain. <laughs> By now, Richard Burton was the man who hardly
0: was because his career heights were way behind him. Yes, and he was he was very... Um, um, br- Physically, you could feel the deterioration. I mean, he still had, of course, his fabulous voice, his laconic manner, and his um, his constant kind of optimism that he might be able to dominate a speech that ran for about four pages in the script. But he was he was debilitated. and it it gave O'Brien the role of O'Brien, I think, a certain vulnerability um, that would otherwise have been absent if we had used some of the other people who came up before Burton did, such as Sean Connery um, and others. Was the film a success? Yes, in the long run, it was. A, it was a tightrope walk. Because Well it went over budget, didn't it? went it? over budget. And also because the film was so uncompromising, that is to say, unremittingly bleak, it was And black and white as I recall. No. no Why
1: well, it was a colour.
0: It, it was desaturated colour. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the idea was to create a monochrome world in color where all the all the brightness of the world has been sucked out of it by the, the, um, the totalitarian tanks.
1: It, it came back into vogue, of course, in the, during the Trump presidency, didn't it, with so many people making 1984 and
0: Orwellian references. It will never go away because it is the most telling um, indictment of, of what happens to a world that is under totalitarian rule. Isn't it odd that uh, film titles
1: outlive the year they postulate, 1984, still relevant, 2001, The Space Odyssey, still as magical as
0: ever despite its uh, prognostications being (laughs) ludicrous? (laughs) Quite so. Um, There are plenty of, of such films. I mean, Steven Spielberg made a riotous, for some of us, comedy in 1979 called 1941. Um, I didn't mind that, I, yeah. I, I went beyond not minding it. I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, but that's because you're incredibly eccentric.
1: <laughs> uh, okay. Your job at Virgin was yeah. changing. They were no longer producing films after the public, well, the company went public.
0: End mm. of the era? For you? For me, Yes. yeah, But it, ends of eras sometimes <coughs> come simultaneous with the beginning of another. In other words, it's the prospect of the beginning of the next one that accelerates the end of the previous one. You can linger over the end for longer if you don't have something else. And the something else in this case was someone else. And the someone else was a woman that I wanted to marry and lived here. The splendid
1: Andrina. Now, yeah. did uh, your bearded fairy, fairy godmother
0: <laughs> wish the two of you well? <laughs> he, was, he was fantastic. I mean, he, you could almost mistake uh, my resignation for a cause for celebration. <laughs> he gave me the most wonderful going-away party it's possible to have. You know, rooftop in London in autumn, unlimited guests, unlimited barbecue. It's, you know, you, you can't be more cherished or unwanted <laughs> than to have that. So it was, it was a fantastic send-off. In
1: parenthesis, I learned from Sue Milligan, great Australian producer, that she and Andrina, your missus, have written a book on film production. They How have. to be a producer.
0: Well, they, they wrote it and published it about a year ago and to their astonishment, only one line, I think, in the whole book has been superseded by time. So if they... Have
1: they have they no sense of responsibility? Fancy trying to lure people into being film producers at a time when the industry is, uh, well, imploding.
0: I don't think they were trying to lure anybody. I think they were trying to warn people <laughs> who were going into <laughs> it what they might expect.
1: <laughs> now, I understand that Time Flies is really just volume one, a bit like the Old Testament and there's a New Testament in the wings.
0: Yes, I'm about five chapters into the New Testament and um, uh, naturally the Old Testament is interfering with it a bit. Because it exists, whereas the New Testament is still in my head. <laughs>
1: so we can't sit around here and wait for a couple of weeks and then resume our conversation. You need some...
0: next next year, perhaps, okay. if um, you know, if you if you still feel like continuing the conversation, <laughs> we can have it then. Well, we do tend
1: to come together again from time to time. <laughs> the voice of Al Clark, that's not me, that's him, Uh, filmmaker, author and so much more and his autobiography, Volume 1, The New Testament, Time flies, and it's uh, published by wonderful publisher Brandel Schlesinger. That's your lot for the week. Tune in next week to hear the promised part two of The Life of Al and thanks to the team, E.P. Anna Wetfeld, Anne Arnold, Taryn Priadko, Catherine Zengra, Jackie Dent, and Sasha Vegan and thanks to Carly Morris for filling in earlier in the week